Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elijah's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy. And yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone. What do you have to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come down to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them, and they were saying to one another, What is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him as he laid his hands on each one of them. He healed them. Also, demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place. But the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving. But he said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Don't pray for us, Jackie. Oh. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We 
We thank you for your kindness in sending us our Savior. Thank you for the power, Lord, that you gave to him, that he demonstrated. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit that lived in him, was with him, and now, Father God, lives in us. Mm-hmm. We thank you for your word. And we ask, Father God, that you would make this all the more evident in our lives as we hear the teaching expounded this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Jackie. What Jesus did determines who we are and who he is determines what we do. Now, as a pastor, you should know, I, and I'm not a golfer, so you should not be confused as to what I spend my time doing. But I do spend a lot of time thinking about how the truths that we hold dear, that we proclaim as a church week in and week out, actually meet us in the like mundane and normal things, the routine of life. And in um, the category of faith in our life, they all interact, but not only there. I want to see how faith interacts with all the other categories of life in every sphere of our lives, in our family, in relationships, in our hobbies, even in our passions, and certainly in our vocations, the work that we do. And thinking through what purpose the truths of Christ actually serve us, and some of you know this question, if you've done Bible study with me, like how does that help us at 2.30 in the afternoon when you're already six cups of coffee in and you're just looking at a calendar full of more Zoom meetings and crises to fix? And when we see our faith injected into and shaping all of life, every nook and cranny of our life, as I think we should, we might just be going against what is the cultural mandate of our day that is untethering identity from anything other than personal whim at any given moment. It's in light of this, reading an article that came out in February 2021, right? As people were stuck at home still through um, COVID and working from home. And in the New York Times, the author writes this. One of the best pieces of career advice I've ever gotten was to think of jobs as verbs rather than nouns. So, for example, I do journalism rather than I'm a journalist. Or I do youth education rather than I'm a teacher. And he says that it's a mental shift that can help to disentangle who you are as a person from how you spend your days to make money for rent or groceries. And he goes on, he says, experts say it's important to protect yourself from letting problems in one area of your life affect the other areas, especially now that the borders between every aspect of our lives are blurrier than Ever. A bad week at work is a drag on your mental health, but if your work is only part of your identity and not defining it completely, the overall emotional impact of that bad week is less severe. And he says, centering your life on a job may even make you act against your own self-interest and happiness, perhaps by working long hours or accepting behavior you normally wouldn't. He says, not only does that compartmentalization help protect yourself from the lows of one area of your life creating lows in another having space can improve your performance overall so that's like 
the mindset and mentality of the day. And I think there's actually some like psychological benefit to it. There's a, a point to it. And I'm not hating on the sentiment that you, not are, you are not necessarily what you do, right? And we've all heard that before. I remember working in D.C. and that was like the big thing. Like you were defined by what job you had. And that was a mantra for decades and uh, as in a corrective, essentially, I was going to fix everybody, right? I was going to correct our views of self. And so to that end, when I was in D.C. and I would go to a cocktail party, I don't go to many cocktail parties as pastor um, these days, so some things I, I do miss a little bit. But instead of asking what a person did immediately after hearing their name, like, oh, nice to meet you, Julie, what do you do? I would instead ask, who are you? I probably said it even in that creepy voice, right? And, and that rarely went over as well as I thought that it should because I wanted to get at something deeper. Like, I, I, you're not defined necessarily by the work that you do, but what is your soul? What's in you? Who are you about? And that would just ex- essentially be answered by most people with what they did for a living anyway because that's all they knew of how to answer And to be honest, though, I'm starting to think that it's actually good for what you do to be who you are. To have such an integrated life where everything is interconnected, that there is wholeness for you as a follower of Jesus. Finally doing things that match and are shaped by our being. I think it's more than just a philosophical question because the tension plays out before us in Luke 4 and in who Jesus says he is and what he does. This is the declaration of his identity and the proof then that follows right after it. And in that, I think we gain insight for our lives and how we are to live and who we are. Here we have uh, what theologians call a pericope, a story in the gospel, like other stories in the gospels, is designed to teach us what we should actually know and believe about Christ and then how we should live in response to that. And here, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, Luke says. Remember, he's just defeated the temptations of the devil in the wilderness, and now ministry begins in earnest and he's gone out in the power of the spirit and he's preaching he's healing and he's praised by everyone the buzz of his ministry is spreading and this dude is the real deal people are recognizing it that he is who he says he is and he's doing what he says he has come to do and as he does ministry Jesus uses this visit to his hometown to proclaim the fulfillment of a text from Isaiah that was describing who the Messianic king was promised to be. This is the savior that the prophets, that God spoke through the prophets and said, here's who's going to keep you forever. Who's going to bring restoration and salvation to you once and for all. So he says, this is me, and then he proves it by what he does. And what he does determines who we are, and then who he is determines what we endeavor to do as his followers. And you may wonder, well, why do we need to know this? What's the point? 
a clever turn of phrase about who Jesus is and what he does. But as a church, we want to see the real Jesus and his kingdom. We don't want to just follow the narratives of our culture or the political class or others that have opinions. We want to see it from his word and then live in his way as we are called to as his people. So we start with he is what he does. The ultimate. And he set the scene a little bit. This is the increasingly famous local boy comes back to the local synagogue and is asked to read the prophets section of the service there in that local parish. And now from the first verses of Luke, we've been looking to see who this king that was promised would actually be and what his kingdom would look like. Who exactly is it that we'd hoped for for so long? And we learn the answer from a declaration of what he has come to do. See it in verse 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus, invited to participate in the service in the synagogue, is handed the scroll of Isaiah. And then he finds the appropriate section very much on purpose. And he takes from Isaiah's description of the Messiah and he's essentially playing to the home crowd. He's preaching to the choir here. This is who they have longed for, who they expected to see that would finally come. And there is some significant theological truth here. And that's likely why Luke has put this story in kind of the front end of his gospel. So there's a clear declaration of who Christ is. And everything must unfold from this declaration and everything to come in this gospel will actually prove these words that he claims for himself here. Jesus sits down as a teacher in those days would. And then he says, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, this is a different savior than we might have expected, certainly than Isaiah or that Israel had often neglected to see this promised one who has come, a savior that comes for the poor, for captives, for the disabled, for the oppressed, bringing the year of jubilee, the Lord's favor to those in need. We, if we were like Israel, we might expect that the Savior would come for the cream of the crop, right? Why not come for the elite? Why not come for the religious, the pure, the hometown crowd? Those that are entitled to be saved. This makes me think of, anybody ever done like school ministry? In high schools or something. Some of you all are in the midst of that even as you're in high school. And there was a refrain. I don't know if they still teach you to do this. And, if, and you could take it back and change, Luke, what, you, what they do. Although you're kind of the star. You're the water polo king, right? But it's if you get the quarterback to follow Jesus, everyone else will follow Jesus, right? You can convert the whole school if you get the guy that is most popular. The cool kids will make Jesus cool. And I'm all for quarterbacks following Jesus, even second string and third string quarterbacks, right? But Jesus comes for the needy. 
Those without any social capital whatsoever. Those that are bound by systems. Those that are bound by sin and the devil. And these are certainly spiritual conditions that Jesus is describing here. And you get that, right? There's spiritual poverty. There's emotional blindness that can be at play for us. There's captivity to things of the world and our own sin and idolatry. But I think, and then that's what most of the commentators on this section of Scripture will talk about, about the spiritual realities of these descriptions of people that Jesus says he's come to proclaim good news to. But I think we miss something when we leave these descriptors merely in the realm of spiritual alone. Because they're also physical. These are just like realities of life. And we can say that because those are the people he actually comes to minister to. We could say there's evidence of him ministering to the poor, of healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, freeing captives and oppressed people. It's all real and it unfolds in the story of his ministry. It's good news to the poor, freedom to the enslaved, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for the oppressed. This is the Lord's favor. This vision and experience of renewal and restoration. This is what he does. And it's tied exclusively to who he is as the king. As the redeemer of his people. And then Jesus just proves it. He'll leave his hometown and he'll drive out unclean spirits. He'll free people that are under oppression and then he heals the sick. He, a woman with just a physical malady with fever and then various other diseases. He will heal and restore them. He is a different kind of king. One author says the task Jesus claims for himself benefit people in need. Unlike the rulers of the fallen world, he rules on behalf of the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed, and those who have fallen into debt, whose lands are returned to them during the year of the Lord's favor. And his concern is not only for people in desperate need, he cares for people in every station and condition, as we will see, but his concern for the poor, the suffering, and the powerless distinguishes him starkly from the rulers that he has come to displace. He's different than we expected. He's different than Israel thought that their king would be. And this is tremendously good news for us. In these verses, we have yet another way in which the message of the gospel is explained to us. It is good news to those who are afflicted and in need, the poor here. It is new freedom and liberty for those that are in bondage and oppressed. It is a restoration of sight to the blind. And it is, in short, essentially the time and place of God's favor upon those incapable of gaining their status by their ability. And when we recognize then our brokenness and bondage and blindness, the gospel meets us fully and restores us, brings us to health. So the gospel applies to our lives at the level of our whole person. Not only in our need for sin forgiveness. And we apply this full gospel to ourselves by looking to Jesus for restoration in every area of our lives. Not just in the spiritual realm. And who he is, is for everyone in need. 
verse 42 and 43, Luke writes, When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place, but the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. So this is what the kingdom looks like. The poor brought in liberation, experienced healing, favor with God, and a God that goes after people. And this is the way of Jesus that we are actually invited into. And we're faced with the question of how will you respond? You have to think through what he does and who we are. Now this morning, I want you to know you have a choice. Right? Don't don't tell people to question my Calvinist credentials. But, But maybe do. Right? Here we have some hometown rejection, which I think is fascinating right there is amazement at jesus's claims they're stunned as they hear him read the scripture and claim it for himself but the crowd rather than staying in that amazement and awe and almost a worshipful approach to him they begin to question um, who he is because he isn't who they thought he would be and he's certainly not going to do what they expect either it's as if he's too lowly. And we, we see it. They say, isn't he Joseph's son? Isn't he just that dude from down the street? Don't I have a chair that he made in my house? That rickety chair? I don't think Jesus made rickety chairs, by the way. But he, he responds by saying, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Sorry, Omaha, I'm not coming to preach. Yeah, and I notice you haven't invited me either. My mom's about to hear that and then say, come on, you can preach to her small group. And he, he recognizes he doesn't have honor in his hometown. And then he goes on to tell stories about the grace of God and who it is that his grace reaches. And you have to understand, those stories unsettle the crowd. Have you ever been sitting somewhere and somebody preaches about how somebody is saved by the grace of Christ and you get mad because of it? Because that's what's happening here. And he says, in Elijah's day, there were certainly widows in Israel. He's saying there were people in need in Israel, but he was sent. Elijah was sent to a Gentile widow and she is blessed with flour and oil to get her through the famine. An outsider. They hear that. Nazareth can't take that. The hometown crowd cannot stand that. In their eyes, they are not really as poor as he thinks they should be. They assume that they are good. They're the respectable, synagogue-attending, family-oriented, solid citizens of Nazareth. And the comparison here with the Gentile woman in Elijah's day would have been a massive insult to them. They would have taken that truth and then just decided to be offended by it. And he goes on, he says, In Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, but not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. The foreigner. The general, the dangerous one. And when they heard that, they were enraged, Luke said. 
So Jesus here is in the company of prophets that are hated by Israel. But the people's pedigree is not what was supposed to save them. That's kind of the point here. It's their need. And they can't stand that. They, they want it to be their history. They want it to be their pedigree that, stand, that saves them. Not, in fact, their need. And friends, you need to understand the way of Jesus is the end of entitlement. It's the end of presuming on privilege. It's the end of refusing to see outsiders as part of the kingdom. One scholar says salvation is, in other words, not restricted to the sons of Abraham, let alone the villagers of Nazareth. It is for every son of Adam, for Jesus came to save not just Jews, but humanity. As this gospel has already indicated and will stress increasingly, he is to be the savior of the world. That's what's declared in Isaiah. That's what he claims for himself. And they hear that and they try to kill him. We just had Lunar New Year. Some of us went back to be with our family as we traditionally would. And when you've gone home, has your family ever tried to kill you? Because you weren't married yet or you didn't have, you, you know, you weren't a doctor yet? In some places we pray for some friends across the globe that that might be a reality. But your hometown is rarely trying to kill you. So we read this and there's a clue here. Do not be these people. Right? Don't, don't bail on Jesus because you don't like who he saves. Kent Hughes says that there are many lepers in the church today and many starving widows, but they do not know that they are spiritually poor, spiritually captive, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, upright, religious, family focused. They become furious at the thought that they need God's grace. Their enviable heritages and fine church traditions insulate them from their spiritual poverty. And in effect, they cast Jesus out. Those most in need of mercy and grace often know it the least. What an indictment for us. Because that is often how we live. When we neglect or forget the grace of Christ, we think it's about earning, about proving of how great we are. And here is Jesus over and over again saying, I've come to preach good news to the poor, to the captives, to those who need liberty. And friends, when entitlement is washed away, there is recognition of our need, of our poverty, of our oppression, of our blindness. And those that own these things actually come to Jesus and are redeemed and made his once and for all. And maybe that's, that's you today, that you're hearing this invitation to trust Jesus and take it. Follow after him. Know that he's come to rescue you. He came to give you good news. We see how it plays out. John's gospel, John 1, 10 and 13, he says, He was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own did not, people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God, if you've believed in his name, then this is who you are. 
This is the deepest truth of your identity, that you're children of God, that you are redeemed by Jesus, kept for his glory, citizens of his kingdom. And now that we have been brought in, we live accordingly. We have to think about who he is and what we do. The way of Jesus then for us is Christ-likeness. Just being like our king, being about the same things that define him. And I love what seems to be the throwaway line in verse 40 that is really the definition of ministry for all of those of us that follow Jesus. Luke says, when the sun was setting, and they have to wait till it's setting because this is Sabbath, so they can't be moving and bringing people around. But now that the sun is setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Did you see that? Somebody said, what's it mean to be a Christian? All those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. All those who had anyone sick. This is us as witnesses of Jesus, imploring people to come to him, to find freedom, healing, new life, purpose, in a place to finally belong and call home. This is just us sharing what we have been given in Christ. And wherever Christ went, the kingdom went. And when men and women come to him in faith, the kingdom enters their hearts. And all true believers are part of the kingdom to come. And it spreads. It's noticeable. You have to recognize this is the best place to be identified in Christ, that you belong to him, kept by him, and living for his fame in All things in the pulpit on Sundays and around the coffee pot on Tuesdays, in small group on Wednesdays and on the sidelines on Saturdays. The worst of us receive grace. And that's the point. And what is good news for me, whoever I may be, whoever or however bad I am, is good news equally for me to pass on to my neighbor, whoever she may be. But we have to understand, it's not just an evangelistic appeal. Who he is should shape our lives, how we live. We are not meant For a segmented life, but an integrated one. Transformation in the faith portion of our life is meant to ignite in our souls and spread to the extremities and to all of life. He's to fill our church category, our relationships, our civics, our work, our play, everything about us. Pastor Tony Evans says, Indeed, Jesus had come to set the captives free, open blind eyes, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the year of the Lord's favor is another name for the year of Jubilee, every 50 years in Scripture. When Israel was instructed to set slaves free and release people from their debts, as well as allowing them to return to their family property. Jubilee is a symbol of the social and economic liberation of God's people. The key, however, to understanding the year of Jubilee is that it was inaugurated by the Day of Atonement, when the issue of sin was addressed. The spiritual transformation is the foundation for the legitimate social, political, and economic restructuring of society. 
people would be saved, that the blood of Christ would be applied to their lives, that they would experience redemption, and then everything about them changes and everything around them changes. It's the renewal of others in all things that begins in our hearts by the atoning work of Jesus for us, and it spreads from us to our neighbors, to strangers, and as we live for this renewal, to see the radical transformation of our world, it's where the kingdom goes forth. And this is going to mean different things for each of us how it plays out, how I actually prioritize, how I do my work and you do your work. And thankfully, we have a community of believers that can help us refine that vision over time. But in all we endeavor to do, as followers of Jesus, we must see those that he came for. And we see them because he came for us in our need and we have been made part of his kingdom. This is what the world needs to see. A scholar named Michael Wilcock wrote in 1979, this is before many of you were even born or an idea, but it's so relevant even to our day. And he wrote then, there is in this challenge to the churches of the Western world where great, the great majority of people have in some way or other heard reports of him, reports of Jesus. He says, the folk religion which survives from past generations more Christian than our own may be little more than superstition at this point. The image of Christ pervaded by the mass media of the present may sometimes be highly unsatisfactory, but the churches can at least try to correct such knowledge by ensuring that the Jesus known through them at any rate is the genuine Jesus of the New Testament. The way they live and preach and worship must be, as far as they can make it so, an embodiment of his word. And I think if it applied in 1979, it applies all the more in 2022. To preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I have a a good friend who's a pastor in El Cajon, and he has spent the last week and a half in social media and other spaces proving to people that he has always been a Bengals fan. Shows childhood pictures wearing jerseys as, as a San Diegan, as if he had no credibility. Like he wanted to prove, I am not just a Fairweather fan. And I was struck by that because it's like, how many times do we speak something or attach ourselves to something that is currently the rage because we want to say, well, I'm a Christian. And for my friend Wes, He didn't have to post on social media. It is evidenced by his life that he's been a fan. What Jesus invites his followers into in us in the kingdom is to prove it with our lives just as he proved it with his. This is the real Jesus. What he does, he saves and who he is, our king. And in light of this, let's live. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are anointed by the Father and the Spirit to preach good news to the poor, 
to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Lord, because you came to do that and gave of yourself on the cross and defeated death on the third day, the year of the Lord's favor is not tied to one calendar year. It is now an era of the Lord's favor. Lord, help us to see that and live with hearts of jubilee. That we too would go after the same people that you came to rescue. Those that are poor spiritually, physically. Those that are blind spiritually and physically. Those that are oppressed spiritually and physically. That your church would stand for those that you've come to give favor to. Lord, for some of us, maybe even for the first time, our experience of your grace and work for us will transform something in our hearts that we will get a sense of this jubilee. That we'll start to proclaim of how you've restored our fortune, have you renewed us, how you've made us something different. Holy Spirit, I ask for an increase of those types of stories that the name of Jesus would be glorified and his kingdom would go forth among us. In Jesus' name. Amen.